Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases physician and scientist on the latest information on the coronavirus. And as far as what China is doing with the outbreak, Margaret McClake Johnston joined us. She's a senior fellow at the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Super Bowl, Warren Moon, one of the most successful quarterbacks in the history of football. Admission to two football halls of fame, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame and, of course, the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Played both in the CFL and the NFL on the Super Bowl. And a lot has been said, more is being written about the great pandemic. 1918 to 20, the flu pandemic. And the great flu pandemic of 1980 to 1920, in which almost 100 million people died globally. That story, the real story, and how it affected Canada from Professor Anne Herring. We're going to begin uh, with Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases physician and scientist in uh, Toronto, University of Toronto, and uh, Toronto General Hospital. His focus uh, is public health and global health issues. Dr. Bogosh, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, what, are the, what are the chief concerns that are rising now among infectious diseases physicians and scientists? We just had today the news that there's the first death of the coronavirus outside China. What are the chief concerns now? Yeah, I think there, there's a couple, and obviously one of the big ones is, you know, what is the extent of disease transmission in China, really at the epicenter of this? So how much uh, transmission is going on? How many people are getting infected? What are the control efforts at place in China? And are, they, are these control efforts working? Are they slowing transmission in China? Because, you know, the key point here is, if they can control transmission in China and reduce the burden of illness in China, then, of course, there will be uh, lower, a lower probability of people flying from China and exporting this elsewhere in the world. So that's number one. I think the other key point is, are there perhaps chains of transmission outside of China that we might not know of yet? Uh, and, and in particular in, in you know, low-resource settings, so countries that might not have the same capacity as Canada to detect uh, cases or, or, or prevent spread in the community. So you know, has that, is that happening, and has that happened yet? And there's been a huge rush to, to, to help mobilize efforts to, to you know, be able to detect and control the spread of this in, uh, in lower-resource settings. So those, I think, are the two big ones. But, of course, there's you know, a list of ongoing concerns that are longer than my arm. 
Yeah, I'm sure, and I'm sure that uh, that list grows longer by the day. The more the more we find out, or the more presupposition there is. But what medical options are there right now to fight the virus? Uh, the vaccine is at least a year away. We understand. So, what's available now? How 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 is it approached on a day to day basis? So, I mean, fortunately, I think there's a growing narrative that this virus is not as deadly as initially thought. And, you know, when you go on to the, you know, WHO website and you look at the, you know, for example, numbers of cases detected and you can see the numbers of of deaths, people are quoting, you know, something like a 2% uh, fatality rate with this infection. And we know that usually earlier on in the epidemics, in many epidemics, this death rate or fatality rate is grossly overestimated because it's very likely that there's a lot of people that, you know, just aren't sick enough to come to medical attention. And in fact, we're starting to see this in the medical literature emerging from this virus that, you know, sure, some people, you know, sadly get get sick and are hospitalized and sadly some people succumb to the illness. But there seems to be a lot of people that just don't get that sick. They might have mild, uh, mild symptoms that resolve. Some people had no symptoms whatsoever. So when we look at, you know, the complete spectrum of illness, this, uh, this, this death rate is probably going to go down significantly. And I think the other thing, too, is for, what about those people who are sick? What about for those people who are hospitalized and, um, and, uh, and you know, need you know, clear medical support? You know, th- currently there's no true treatment for this virus. And I should remind listeners that most viruses, most uh, especially respiratory viruses, don't have any targeted therapy. Of course, influenza has a a pill or a drug that we can use, but most other respiratory viruses don't have therapy. And we really rely on your immune system to kick in and and take over and, and people generally recover. So what we do is we provide care, we provide fluid and electrolyte support, they would provide support to get the fever under control. If people are having some shortness of breath or difficulty maintaining appropriate oxygen levels in the body, we can use different mechanisms to help supplement oxygen through a little bit of oxygen through the nose. Sometimes people need a mask to have more oxygen. And, you know, in the very, very critically ill people, they they can put a breathing, uh, what's it called, a breathing tube down the throat to help. But that seems to be the... um, the exception and not the rule. In fact, most people seem to have more mild illness than uh, than severe illness now. So if the fatality rate were 2%, isn't that roughly, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but you would know, how does that compare to the uh, to the normal flu? Let's say we had a, a, a vigorous strain of, let's call it normal flu. What, yeah. would, what would the, what would the uh, death rate be from that? So with, with conventional, you know, with most influenza strains, the mortality rate is far less than 1%. Okay. Um, and this mortality rate of 2%, I should remind people that that's, this is what we call a selection bias. And, and we know that it's, it's really not going to be 2%. It's probably going to be far less than 2% when we start to account for people that just aren't sick enough to come to medical attention. So while you know, some people might have some sense of alarm and, and, and seeing that number, uh, it's, it's, it's in medical circles and in public health circles and in epidemiology circles, most people are aware that there, there's this growing narrative of much of a, a significant number of people with more mild illness, and and that that number is going to drop when uh, when we just have access to better data. So, I mean, obviously, an eyebrow is raised. Obviously, we take it seriously, but uh, but we sort of are the crystal ball is starting to get a little more clear, and the narrative of more mild illness being more common is starting to emerge. So that's. You know, th- those are helpful points. I think. Yeah, uh, as a fact, as a vaccine is being developed, I was curious about this. It, 
the word is it will take a year to get the vaccine. In a year, a virus can mutate several times, no? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) You know, I'm always a little, I mean, kudos to the people developing the vaccine. I mean, this is this is clearly hard work. And of course, uh, they have to put their efforts into fifth gear to get this done. I, I mean, in all fairness, you know, we were supposed to have a chikungunya vaccine. And there's a ton of work going on there. We were supposed to have a Zika virus vaccine. Again, there's advanced clinical trials. But, you know, I think it's challenging to rapidly deploy a vaccine that's still under investigation, uh, especially in the context of an outbreak. Having said that, you know, they were very they were able to successfully do this with the 2014 Ebola virus epidemic in West Africa. But I think we have to remember in that situation, they had, you know, over a decade of a head start. I mean, there was a the, the uh, work on this Ebola vaccine had been his, was very advanced at the time of that epidemic. So so it's a, that's a bit of a different story. And, and certainly people have been working on coronavirus vaccines. But like, in all fairness, I, I think it might be a little premature to expect them to come out during the course of this epidemic. Final question for you, then. Uh, should we gather from or, you know, gain from what you've told us that the concern about this coronavirus outbreak may be diminishing? No, I mean, I think even there's a few points here. I mean, even if it's not as severe as it was initially thought to be, we still know it can cause severe illness and we still know how it can spread. And if it does spread beyond China and there's significant spread throughout the world, people are going to get sick. A lot of people are going to get sick. And, and that's hopefully preventable with the control initiative efforts uh, that are, are being you know, imposed in, in China. So, even if even if the case fatality rates and the, the sort of the mortality rates are really low, you know, by by a sheer numbers game, if it does spread beyond China and infects a significant population, you know, these are these are really unnecessary deaths and unnecessary illnesses. So, you know, I really think all efforts continue to be placed rightfully and continue to be placed in China to get the infection under control at the source. Dr. Bogosh, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Oh, anytime. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases physician and scientist, University of Toronto, Toronto General Hospital, focused on public health and global health issues. All right, so we were just hearing uh, Dr. Bogosh say a lot has to do with how China reacts and responds to what's going on. Uh, to address that point, uh, Margaret McQuaig Johnston, uh, Dr. Margaret McQuaig Johnston, senior fellow with the China Institute at the University of Alberta, distinguished fellow, Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, and research associate at Duke Kunshan University in China. Dr. McQuaig Johnston, thank you very much for the time. And if we can just look at uh, China itself and maybe uh, look at the impact that this is having on China, which may have a lot to do with how they respond. What are the what's the what's the most important uh, consideration in that regard of the impact of this particular virus on China? And I'll just add this: I was looking at a um, at a New York Times online headline: "Coronavirus anger boils over in China, and doctors plead for supplies." Yeah. So their number one problem right now is um, handling the health risk. Um, because it seems to be spreading fairly quickly. Um, most, most companies are closed, so that's harming the economy. But uh, you have to remember this time of year, it's sp- 
spring festival. And so um, just in, in Wuhan alone, where the, the virus started, in early January, 5 million people left that city and went to other parts of China. So that's one of the uh, ways in which the virus has spread. Um, since people were off on holidays anyway, it's been uh, relatively easy for the government to um, say, well, we're, we're just going to continue the spring festival. Don't go to work. Uh, don't let your kids go to school. Their, their schools are closed. This is across the country, a country of 1.3 billion people, which is essentially in lockdown. So that's really uh, quite an incredible thing. I don't think we've seen anything comparable um, uh, to, to this. Uh, in the longer term, there is certainly going to be market uncertainty for China and other countries in the region. And in fact, in Canada and U.S. and other countries, we're going to start to see supplies of parts and other products start to dry up as shipments aren't coming and flights aren't aren't leaving. So. Um, and then the long-term prospect uh, could be some amount of social unrest, uh, especially if people aren't able to get food. Uh, remember, everybody's being told to stay home, uh, and so we, uh, and we're, all the roads are blocked. So uh, how are people getting access to food? And then some of them really want access to health care and, and need it. So all of that is is um, making for a very, very complex uh, situation there. Now, China um, has been criticized and it's been uh, suggested that they were very slow to get off the mark and to share not only the uh, the outbreak with the rest of the world, but share it with, the, with their own people in China. And so now uh, it's China's uh, responsibility to participate internationally, and we just heard that from our last guest. How do you see China's responsibility to, to move forward, and do you think they will do so responsibly? Well, they've made commitments to the World Health Organization that they will provide accurate numbers. Uh, the problems as this was unfolding in the uh, first month uh, so into kind of mid-December into early January, is that the doctors in hospitals who were seeing the cases of the virus were reporting those and were, were doing so publicly and alerting uh, the more senior authorities. They were told to stop spreading rumors. And, you know, there's a, there's a culture in China of not wanting to tell bad news up the line. And so there was an attempt to, to uh, squelch um, the information um, that, in fact, some doctors were actually detained um, in detention centers and accused of providing inaccurate numbers. So that's something that they need to get on top of. We're, we're seeing now that, um, you know, there is more reporting. The numbers are certainly bigger, but it's also not clear um, that, the, that it's still being fully reported. Um, we have uh, some indications that uh, the numbers that are reported are the people who have died at hospital, um, not people who die at home or elsewhere. And and I've, just from my own contacts in China, um, you know, at the point where it looked like it was 6,000 people had the virus, I was hearing from people in the government that it was more than 100,000. So, uh, you know, they, those are government people, but not plugged into the health system. So it's unclear whether that, that was accurate. But you can see that, that uh, 
information in a very controlled uh, regime like uh, Beijing operates, um, is uh, it's hard to get a fix on what's actually true. Yeah. In about 20 seconds, what do you make of China uh, excluding Taiwan from the World Health Organization and the International Airlines Organization? Well, that's really serious because there are flights, of course, in and out of Taiwan all the time. And so it's a risk for Taiwan, but it's also a risk for other countries because um, people go from Taiwan to uh, to other countries as well. Um, and uh, uh, they, they also should be contributing to the science. All right. uh, they have the top uh, doctors in, in Taiwan. I know some of them, and, okay. and they should be contributing to the solution. Okay, I have to stop you there, uh, Dr. Lee, because it's called the big hand and the little hand, or the digital numbers are flipping beyond my control. Uh, thank yeah. you so much. I, I know we'll uh, ask you to come back as the situation continues to develop. Thank you for your time. Good to talk to you, Roy. All the best. Uh, Dr. Margaret McQuaig Johnston, she is a senior fellow with the China Institute at the University of Alberta and uh, a research associate at Duke Kunshan University in China. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Warren, the San Francisco 49ers were 4-14 four and 14 last year. They're in the Super Bowl this year. Does that speak to parity in the NFL or injuries for the Niners last year? Uh, I think injuries played a big part of it for the 49ers, uh, and also uh, just having strong drafts. Uh, they've been able over the last few years to really create a lot of high-round draft picks because they haven't been that good. But now all those draft picks kind of came to fruition over this last year. So it's, uh, it just all came into place as far as all the different guys being healthy, uh, all the young guys that they've been drafting over the last few years really uh, – coming into their own as far as their talent level. And their quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, has had a whole year uh, as a quarterback starting for them, and, and he's uh, done what they expected him to do when they brought him in. So let me ask you about the quarterbacks. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, the most mobile, exciting quarterback to watch since Warren Moon. And meanwhile, you've got Jimmy Garoppolo. He's described as a game manager who throws when he has to and that he's overmatched by Mahomes. Do you see that? I don't see him as being that overmatched. I see uh, uh, the styles are different offensively for both teams. Uh, Kansas City relies more on their quarterback, uh, Patrick Mahomes, to throw the football because that's what their offense asks for, whereas the 49ers are more of a running football team, and, and they have their quarterback more of a of a manager. But when he's had to 
have big games throwing the ball this year or when he's had to make big throws, he's been able to do that. So the two teams just asked their quarterbacks to do two different things. Who's going to get tired faster in the game, do you think? Mahomes or the 49ers defensive line? It's sort of billed as Bosa versus Mahomes. Yeah, I think his offensive line does a really good job. Um, it's going to be a great matchup between his left tackle, Eric, Eric uh, Fisher, and also uh, Bosa going against each other. But um, Patrick does a good job of getting the ball out of his hands quickly, and he, he does a really nice job of maneuvering in the pocket and buying more time for himself. So uh, as long as he knows he needs that clock in his head for on certain routes where he has to get the ball out of his hands quickly if it calls for that, and then there's going to be other times where he's just going to be able to maneuver and get outside the pocket with his legs. But the 49ers are going to have to do a great job of trying to corral him and keep him in the pocket and make him throw the ball from the pocket. But that's you're sometimes asking for uh, for trouble there, too, because he's so good from the pocket, but he's also good outside the pocket. Now, which of the two teams do you think is more versatile and able to change up its preferred game if that becomes necessary? The Niners are kind of like an old-style NFL team. They run most of the time. They throw when they have to. The Chiefs are the opposite. Which team is going to be able to adjust faster if they have to? Well, I think the uh, 49ers are a more balanced team on on offense because they can run the football very well. They were third in the league, I think, in rushing. Um, but they also have a very effective quarterback. So if they need to throw the football a little bit more, they can. Uh, I think the Achilles heel of the uh, Kansas City Chiefs is that they haven't run the ball very well this year. So that if they have to rely on running the ball to try and you know, close the game out or close the end of a half out or something like that, they haven't shown that they can be a consistent running football team. So um, if they can run the ball effectively for about 70 or 80 yards in this game just to keep the 49ers' defense off balance, they'll have a, a pretty good day, I think. But if they can't run the ball at all and they become too one-dimensional, uh, I don't care who you are, if you're one-dimensional, a, fi- a defense is going to figure out and figure out how to stop you. So here's where the coaching comes uh, into play. Uh, Kyle Shanahan versus Andy Reid. All the news this week is about Andy Reid never winning a Super Bowl as the head coach. What's the uh, what's the influence level a head coach has when you get to the Super Bowl? Well, I think Andy's been there before as a, as a uh, head coach, and he's also uh, coached in many on coaching staffs, whether he was with Green, the Green Bay Packers, when he was with Mike Holmgren and other places. So he's got experience in being in this game. Um, Kyle Shanahan was just in this game, I think, three years ago with the Atlanta Falcons as their offensive coordinator. So he's been in this game as well, but he hasn't been a head coach and had to make those uh, big-time decisions that a head coach has to make in this game. So I give the edge to to uh, Andy Reid because he's just been coaching a lot longer than Kyle. But Kyle's been a- around this game for a long time because of his dad, Mike Shanahan. So he's he's been on the sidelines for uh, the Denver Broncos wins in the Super Bowl when his dad was coaching there. So he's, he's no uh, stranger to this game, but he still hasn't head coached in it. So I, I give the edge to, to uh, Andy Reid. Warren, is there a changing of the guard taking place in the NFL? It's maybe the end of the Patriots dynasty, and and where does Tom Brady play next year? At 43 years of age, would you sign him to quarterback a contending team? It depends on what team I have. It depends on what I have at quarterback and what I need there. Uh, There might be a team or two that that need an experienced quarterback to be that final piece to get them over the hump. 
You know, I look at the uh, the L.A. Chargers as being a team like that. They've just parted ways with Phillip Rivers, who's been there for, I think, the last 17 years. Um, they're a team that is really good on defense. They have really good uh, wide receivers. They have a good running back. So they have enough talent um, around Tom Brady that if he wanted to go to, to the L.A. Chargers and play there, I think that would be a good fit for him. But there's not a lot of teams around the league that need um, – older quarterbacks because a lot of teams are, are going with their younger guys and trying to trying to use them for the future but there might be a spot or two around the league that Tom would be would fit in perfect because he might be the missing piece they're looking for. We get back to the uh, Super Bowl there's a Canadian playing for the Chiefs Laurent Duvernay Tardif the uh, right guard um, for the Chiefs. Exciting for Canadians to watch so I have to ask you a Canada question what did playing for the Edmonton Eskimos and winning five consecutive Grey Cups do for your career as a quarterback? And what do you remember most about your years in Canada? Well, first I remember just Canada giving me the opportunity to come up there and play quarterback where the NFL wasn't going to give me that opportunity. So I'll always be grateful to, to Canadians for that uh, and for the Canadian Football League for, for doing that. And just the way the the, uh, the country embraced me all over, the, all over the country, wherever I came to play, I had fans, um, which was great. I also had uh, people that weren't fans, and they booed, and, and they're supposed to do that. But they were always very supportive and, and uh, um very courteous to me and uh, being part of a team that wins five straight championships. I don't think you'll ever see anything like that happen again in sports because it's just too hard to keep a team together that long. And um, with injuries, with free agency, things like that, you're just not going to be able to keep a core group together that long. So what we did was very special and you don't really realize it till maybe 15, 20 minutes, 20, 20 years later that, Hey, we were involved in something that was, not done many times in many other sports, and we were a part of that, and, and I was a part of that. So it was a very, very special time in Canada. Uh, great memories I'll always have about playing up there and great guys and friends that I made on that team and also in the city of Edmonton. Well, you had more than uh, 20,000 passing yards in the CFL, more 50,000 in the NFL, two Halls of Fame, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, just a an amazing career, Warren, and you have huge numbers of fans still in this country. You're also a successful businessman as well as co-founder and president of SportsOneMarketing.com. What do you do as a company? Uh, we're a company that does either marketing or consulting for companies that want to have a more visibility or, or more exposure in sports. And uh, that could be a, a wider range of things, what a team or, I mean, what a company or what a product is looking for to get them their product uh, into the sports world. And uh, an example, if there was a skincare company that came to us and said, we want to get our, our uh, skincare product more exposure to uh, athletes, uh, we want to get our product in their, in their locker rooms. Uh, we would we would market, map out excuse me a plan of, of how to get that done for them and and uh, and make it happen. So uh, that's just an example of, of you know one of the things that we would do if a company came to us and said they want to use our marketing uh, techniques or our consulting techniques to get their product to market. Okay, I have one final question for you. It's the inevitable question: Who wins on Sunday? And please don't let the fact that the last two years of your career you wore a Kansas City Chiefs uniform color what you tell me. Well, I'm it's going a bad with joke. the Chiefs. Uh, <laughs> I uh, 
I, I went to the AFC Championship game in Kansas City last week. I went to the uh, divisional round two weeks ago. Uh, I've been following Patrick Mahomes since he came out of college at, at Texas Tech. Uh, he's uh, being represented by my my representative when I was playing pro ball, Lee Steinberg. So I got a chance to know him as a young guy, and uh, I just think the the uh, Kansas City fan base they've been waiting 50 years to get back to a Super Bowl, and I also feel uh, soft spot in my heart for for Andy Reid. I think the only thing missing on his resume is a Super Bowl championship. So I think. Uh, Kansas City is going to win the game. I think it's going to be relatively high scoring, something like 31-27. But I think the Chiefs will pull it out and just have too much offense for uh, San Francisco to stop. I just want to say another thank you to the Canadian uh, football fans that are listening, and and thanks for all the support you've given me over all the years that i played up there and all my years playing down here in the United States. What a gentleman. What a real gentleman. I I really enjoyed speaking with him, uh, with Warren Moon. Uh, five consecutive Grey Cups, 79 through 82. Grey Cup MVP in 1980 and 82. Threw for 5,648 yards in his final CFL season, uh, which was, was in 1983. Uh, he won C- the CFL's Most Outstanding Player Award as well. And uh, then the Houston Oilers of the NFL won the bidding war for Warren Moon because Hugh Campbell, who'd been the the, Oiler, the, uh, no, the Oilers, the, uh, the Eskimos head coach, uh, and, uh, and and went to the, uh, the the Oilers. So net passing, I'm just looking at the numbers here, CFL, NFL combined passing yards, Warren Moon, 70,553. Two Halls of Fame, Canadian Football Hall of Fame and the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. So Warren Moon says KC 31, Niners 27. I don't like the Niners because I'm a Cowboys fan, and I remember some guy in Montana named Montana throwing a ball to, you know, some tight end back in the 80s. Stole the Super Bowl from the Cowboys. But I think the Niners are going to win. I think it's going to be, um, I'm going to reverse the score the Warren Moon gave us. I think it's going to be San Francisco 31 and KC 27. I thought about whether we should do this next segment, thought about it for a few days before I decided that it was a good idea to go forward and I spoke with our um, management, spoke with the program director about it. And the reason that I uh, thought we would do this is that I was reading um, a number of commentaries and seeing some and hearing some comments about the pandemic of 1918-1920 and some outlandish things were being said. And I I know that given the spread of the coronavirus, this 1918 pandemic is going to be talked about more. There's no connection between the two. Um, I hope there never will be. But to bring this the 1918 situation into into the picture and contextually, properly talk about it. Um, and and uh, the numbers are staggering, frankly. Up to 100 million people died globally. Um, but our guest says more, more people actually survived what was called the Spanish flu, the H1N1, than perished from it. The pandemic consisted of three separate waves, and uh, no one really understands what was truly happening. We'll get into all of this. My guest is Dr. Anne Herring. 
She's a professor of anthropology at McMaster University, retired. Her primary interest is the anthropology of infectious diseases, epidemics, and pandemics. And she's an expert on the 1918 to 1920 pandemic. Dr. Herring, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Roy. Uh, most people, and I've done a lot of reading on this simply because of an interview I did a long time ago with a doctor who was, at the time, in the U.S. Army. He's an elderly gentleman, and he, he told me that more of the patients that he was treating were sick from the flu than had been wounded in battle. So I've been reading about it for years, but I had no idea, and I wonder how many people do know that that pandemic of 1918 to 20 wasn't a single event. There were three waves. Can you talk to us about that, please? Well, yes, and uh, it was really discovered after the fact that there were three waves. There was a mild wave in the spring of 1918, and it went kind of undetected in a lot of places. Um, and then there was a very severe epidemic in the fall of 1918. So in Canada, it began around September. And then there was another mild version of influenza in the winter of 1919. And uh, after that, uh, flu kind of bounced around uh, for a number of years, which is why we now call it the 1918 to 1920 uh, influenza pandemic. So it never came to a full stop. It's, uh, it's, it's August 1920 and it's over. There never, was, there never was such a thing. And H1N1 is still around, isn't it? That's right. That's right. But they didn't know it was H1N1 at the time, of course, because um, actually nobody knew what was causing it. Can you talk to us about that? Why, why, was, there, why was it a mystery? Well, a um, couple of things. First of all, it's, it was noticed amongst the troops in... Uh, France in the spring of, of 1918 and medical officers at the time thought it looked like a you know a, a flu-like situation but they couldn't be sure what it was and um, they didn't at the time have the kind of uh, technology that we have today to identify viruses so in fact the flu virus wasn't identified until 1933 so we're looking at 1918, and they weren't able to visualize it. Yes, they had microscopes, and they could look at bacteria, but of course viruses are much smaller, and they didn't have the technology. So based on the symptoms that they were very familiar with, because influenza had been around for a long time, it looked like influenza, but the new medical technology couldn't actually say what it was. And uh, so that, it was frightening, because it was yeah. a new... It seemed to be a new thing. When, when you don't know what you're dealing with, but it looks like something that you might have been dealing with, and you have this kind of um, catastrophic reality that it's creating over a period of time, uh, that, that has to be terrifying. It, it's trying to, it, like we, we can see vir a virus now. They had, they had no, no such signs. That's right. And, um, of course, there was no effective way to treat it either. We're talking about the pre-antibiotic, pre-viral treatment era. So there was really no effective medical treatment for it. So uh, most of what we know about about this pandemic, we know about the second wave. Is that yes. correct? And yes. that's the one that killed between 50 and 100 million people globally. That number is just staggering. Yes, and, and we don't really know how accurate that number is simply because um, 
there were lots of places in the world, including Canada, where there really wasn't any medical surveillance to keep to keep track of the number of cases and how many died and so on. So there have been a number of attempts to come up with new estimates. So the high estimate of 100 million is actually dismissed by many people, and probably the one that you would see most often in print is 50 million, but that's still a staggering number. It is. And what I found very interesting, and I'd ask you to talk, speak to this, please, of all the people who fell sick, the vast majority recovered. Yes. Absolutely. What are the numbers? Well, um, the estimate for Canada is that one in six Canadians fell sick. Again, this would be in the fall and winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps 55,000 Canadians died in that period of time. But most people recovered in a week. And so influenza has um, what's called high morbidity, meaning lots of people get sick, and relatively low mortality. So when you look at how many people died of the people who got sick, what they call the case fatality rate, um, it was about two and a half, two point five percent. And what killed many people was not flu itself, but underlying conditions that they had, like secondary infections that uh, led to pneumonia, um, heart conditions, diabetes, any kind of underlying condition that would have made people vulnerable to just about any infection. It's interesting you say that because yesterday we were talking with microbiologist Jason Tetro, mm-hmm. and he brought up the point about underlying conditions like coronary artery disease. Mm. And, and if you have those conditions, don't want to scare people, but if you have those conditions under the wrong circumstances, those conditions could actually end up being a conduit for the flu virus. Yes. Am I right? Yeah. Well, what, you know, what, what happens is you get an infection... And, uh, and then your body's ability to fight that infection is limited because of the other condition that you have. Okay. Um, how did this begin? What was going on at the time which might have given rise to this pandemic? Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the... There, there's still a lot of things that aren't known about this pandemic, which is what keeps people looking at it and makes it fascinating. Um, certainly it, it, it erupted during World War One, and it's pretty clear that its spread around the world was connected with troop movements and also the conditions that the troops were living under. Uh, you know, these crowded trenches, the crowded hospitals, the crowded troop ships and troop trains and so on, which would, allowed it, would, which would have allowed any kind of um, airborne uh, infection to spread rapidly from person to person. Um, so that was a big factor in the spread of the of the virus worldwide, because of course there were also troops from w- around the world in Europe, and they were sending soldiers home. Mm-hmm. And so the virus was going along with the ships that were going back and forth, and uh, this made it possible for the disease to spread worldwide. That's very interesting. If there had been no war, no First World War, maybe we wouldn't be talking about this. You kind of wonder, don't you? Yeah, you do. You, 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 yeah. Because those, uh, if, if we're going to look at the troop movement situations, you're putting a lot of people in a confined area and you're moving them together and they don't really have anywhere to go and they're just, you know, they're together in a train or together on a ship. That's right. And that would be sort of a, 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 a breeding ground for, for the virus. Sure. And, and here's, a, here's another interesting um, war connection, Roy. Um, 
You know that the 1918 flu is often called the Spanish influenza. Yes. Well, it, it's called that not because it started in Spain, but because of the war that was going on in Europe, and there was censorship going on. And neither side of the war wanted the other side to know that they had soldiers that were getting sick. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Spain was neutral at the time. And so when the uh, people started falling sick from influenza, it was being discussed in the papers. And so it was, you know, the first word of it came out in the Spanish press, and then it got called Spanish influenza, but it had nothing to do with the origin of it. Well, that's interesting. Dr. Herring, uh, so how did this flu get to Canada, and, and was it another case of troop movements? Well, Roy, it was a case of troop movements, but it wasn't what we once thought. Um, the earliest ideas about it was that flu was brought back to Canada uh, with demobilized soldiers from Europe. But research that was done by Mark Humphreys, who's in the history department at Laurier, um, he actually demonstrated that it came to Canada via the United States uh, because the epidemic was uh, sort of embroiling the East Coast before it came to Canada, and mm. soldiers were being sent by train through Canada to be shipped via um, Montreal or Halifax overseas. In a, I mean, their main place of debarkation was New York, but some of them were being shipped through Canada, and some of them were training in Canada. And uh, so the flu seems to have uh, come in connection with troop movements, yes, but from the United States, okay. not from Europe. And this is all. This is what we find out as the research goes on years yeah. afterward. Now, when we talk about Canada, the population was around 2 million at that time, wasn't it? I think it was around 8. It was 8 million? Okay. Uh, and f- 50,000 people died in this country, if I have that yes. number correctly. And, and, yeah, what, and the estimate is that one in six got sick. One in six, okay. There is an average mortality rate for the country as a whole, which you really have to take with a grain of salt, right. which is six people per 1,000 died oh, yeah. from influenza pneumonia. That would be a, that would be a 1, huge number. Um, when we talked the other day, you said social conditions impacted significantly on the death rate, and and. Good nursing is what got people through it. Well, yes, because um, I think what a lot of people today don't realize is that back then, most people didn't have doctors. It was only the very wealthy people who had a personal physician who would come and do a home. It's amazing to think of, isn't it, in 2020? It is. It is. And um, so what got people through this was not care by a doctor, but care by somebody who kept them fed, kept them warm, kept them hydrated, so that they could get through this uh, really nasty infection. And you said to me, at that time, there were networks of care that started to be established. Communities did amazing things to help out. Other communities isolated themselves, tried to keep people out. But there was also a great movement toward volunteerism. Yes, and um, some of it was organized. So that, for example, there was a in Ontario what was called the SOS, as in, you know, Save Our Souls, the Ontario Volunteer Emergency Health Auxiliary was set up. Mm -hmm. And these were uh, primarily women who volunteered to 
uh, often through churches or um, other sort of women's club organizations, and they prepared meals. They would go and um, uh, take care of people in their homes, set up soup kitchens, um, and there was a tremendous uh, sense of the need to provide this kind of care. Okay. Small sidebar here, but I think it's worth talking about. There's always going to be somebody who's going to sense opportunity when, uh, even in the wor- <laughs> worst of circumstances. And you told me, uh, tell us about the tell us about the bicycle story. I love the bicycle story. Um, well, first of all, I should say most of the information uh, came through newspapers. Okay. And newspapers were were great sources of uh, reminding the public about everything. Right. So the CCM Bicycle Company ran an ad. Uh, during the the pandemic, saying something like, to avoid the flu, buy a bicycle. Get out in the country, get some fresh air, get away from the crowded trolley cars and so on. Ride a bike and you'll be able to avoid the flu. You're going to need one in the spring anyway. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to laugh under the circumstance, but it is kind of... It does give you a little bit of bit of the giggles, and insurance companies were saying, buy buy insurance. Who would say, well, we have special coverage for Spanish flu sufferers. Um, there were all kinds of uh, ads for, I think, home remedies that you could of course. take, like Dr. Chase's menthol bag, which you would wear around your neck, um, because, of course, there was no effective treatment for No, and people were desperate. People. Uh, Dr. Herring, in, uh, in the time we have left, what's the takeaway from this pandemic in 1918 well, for me, one of the takeaways is uh, it was no single event. It was something that recurred and s- that there were many stories and many circumstances that made the death rate different in some places compared to others. Um, and I think most people don't realize that in 1918, even when we hit this terrible death uh, toll, most people survived. And that's, that's you know what, in a, in a strange way, Given the terribly uh, disturbing numbers, that's, in a strange way, it's, it's comforting. I, mm-hmm. It's the only word I can use. It's comforting. I thank you so much for joining us. I, I wanted to get the, the real picture of this, of this two years. I, thought, I didn't know it was two years. I thought it was 1918 and maybe into 1919, but no, 1920, and then it, it, it lingered for a while, and we know the H1N1 is not gone. It hasn't disappeared. Thank you, Dr. Herring. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. All the best. So there uh, is something I, I just thought we should do this, and I hope you found it to be helpful because there are going to be uh, continued references to the pandemic, and people sometimes see a headline or read two or three lines from something and then and then repeat it, even if it isn't correct. But even in the worst of circumstances, there's a funny little story, right? Buy a bicycle, get away from the flu. You're going to need one in the spring anyway. <laughs> yeah. Were those 10 speeds? I don't think they had 10 speeds in those. It's like one speed. Fast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.